Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. We've been on this journey through the history of Methodism, and we still have yet to get to United Methodism. That will be happening next week. But right now, we are continuing a journey, and last week was a difficult part of the journey. It's always heartbreaking to look back in the past, whether it's of a person, a family, a church, and see where brokenness manifested itself in such division. And last week, we explored how that happened over the topic of slavery, which was really a topic about racism. And then we come to this week, and this week's section in the history portion of our Book of Discipline is entitled this, Quest for Unity. So from 1945 to 1968, Methodists were looking endeavoring, aspiring to unity. We had just come through a period of time where we formally broke into the Methodist Episcopal Church, as it was known in the northern states, and Methodist Episcopal Church South, as it was in the southern states. And what we find is that as the church broke, it started to look for ways to once more recognize that it is fruitful and productive, that it is healthy, that there is still the blessing of God upon the church. And this was true for the Northern Incarnation as well as the Southern Incarnation. How do we help the world see that we still have something to offer even in the middle of our brokenness? But there was also another shift in how they were engaging with the world because in 1945, they had just endured two world wars. And they never wanted to see that happen again. I'm not sure that there's any among us that are aching to see World War III, even in 2022. But at the time, it was so new and raw that they were so committed to making sure that if there was anything in their power that they could do, that they would work toward world peace and order. They were actually some of the founding driving movement for the establishment of the United Nations. They believed that there needed to be a place where people could meet gather, talk about their differences, work through their issues, so that never again would we turn to warfare that stretched across the globe and also resulted in the use of atomic weaponry. They wanted to avoid that, for they recognized that they were called to be vessels of God's love and grace, and they served the Prince of Peace. So they were working toward that. But that was mostly an external endeavor that was looking out into the world to see how could we establish peace there. Well, that meant that if they were focused out here, that they weren't necessarily looking at the peace in their own broken household. Sometimes it's a lot easier to try to fix the speck in the world than the log in your own denomination. And so that's what they were really kind of focusing on. Let's see if we can do something positive and fruitful out there. Then maybe we'll have enough practice to come back and do it in here. Now, Jesus addresses this. Jesus says, if you've got a problem with someone to whom you have a relationship, specifically citing a sibling, then what Jesus says is, leave your offering here, go fix it, and then come back. God will still be here. But tend to these relationships. They are very important. But during this time, 
The Methodist Church in both of its divisions was struggling with how do we become united, even as we still remain divided culturally, intellectually, and in a lot of ways in the reality of being a church that is continuing to struggle with many different issues. And how do we find a way to move forward together? Can we? Is that even an option? So they were struggling with this. And so one of the other ways that they looked to have unity was to establish ecumenical councils and groups that would bring together Christians from many different denominations. Now, I'm sure you're aware, especially if you have a background in a denomination outside of Methodism, that a lot of the denominations think that they are the best one, right? And they think that they have the, the best way of doing things. I mean, we're not like this in Methodism. We know we have the best way of doing things. I'm just kidding. We're not that arrogant. But we do know that everybody sees the world a little differently. They all see things a little different, from our Catholic siblings in Christ to our Baptist siblings in Christ, even our Presbyterian and Lutheran siblings in Christ, you name it. And finding ways to bring us together is important on a lot of different fronts because really we're all a bunch of people who say that our lives were irreparably changed by the truth of the cross and the grace that we have received in Jesus Christ. And you would think that a bunch of Christians who worship Christ and have received the gift of God's grace would find a place to come together. You might hope that it would be at the communion table. Unfortunately, that seems to be the place that is most divided among Christians. It's incredible. You can gather together in mission and in ministry and do all kinds of things together with Christians from other denominations. And you can say, let's great, let's go. You know, we do this here every year when we pack food for thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people at Rise Against Hunger. Uh, this past year, we've had Baptists, we've had Presbyterians, we even had some Catholics with us that was very exciting to have us all together. And then afterwards, after we had done this wonderful thing, feeding God's lambs, you can say, let's go and have a meal together and you guys can break bread together and do that. But then if you're like, hey, let's go have communion, it's like, whoa, slow down. Moving a little fast now. I was right with you until you talked about a sacrament right there. And so it still remains a place where we are deeply divided. So Methodists at this time period were trying to find ways to come together over Jesus Christ. And you realize that you need that foundation, that place where we come back together. When I was growing up, my mother's family were all located around Chesapeake, Virginia. And we lived in that part of the state known as Northern Virginia. And so it took me a long time to realize that the Mason-Dixon line is not at Springfield, Virginia, as my grandfather would have had me believe, that that is not where the North starts. Instead, it starts way up there by Pennsylvania, but you know what? My grandfather was from Georgia, and everything north of Georgia was completely Yankee. So I understand that. But growing up, my sister and I were the two grandchildren that didn't live right on top of everybody else. My mother had three other siblings, and they had their own spouses and children. And so there was a lot going on consistently in the life of the family in Chesapeake. But we were up in northern Virginia, and so we wouldn't get to interact with them all the time. Now, there was a period of our life where it seemed like at least once a month we were driving down to Chesapeake to stay with my grandparents. But in the course of just a weekend, we might not even see any of the extended family. But they were interacting with each other in their daily lives. 
But there was one time of year where I knew that we were all going to come together. And the priority for the family was always Christmas Eve. It was the time when everybody made all the greatest effort to converge in my grandmother's house. There would be a really large meal. I mean, we're talking about like dozens of people here. And then there would be a gift exchange. And this was part of the way that the family came together and cemented its bond that had, you know, kind of loosened and slacked over the course of the year. Now, they picked Christmas Eve. That was the time. That was when we knew we were going to converge. But the older I got, the more I was aware that we were coming together over Christ. Now, maybe they didn't all see it that way, but if we're here to celebrate Christmas Eve, which is the time when the church remembers with great joy the arrival of the Christ child, then yes, in a lot of ways, it was Christ that was bringing us together. And so I'm sure I have no doubt that there were people in my family that were like, we're coming together because this is what families do, or we're coming together because I really want to see what you got me for Christmas, or whatever their reason is. But in my mind, we were coming together because we were joining at the place where we knew that we were all together for Christmas. And there was that convergence that was happening there. And I believe that the Methodist Church was looking for that in this time period, in this quest for unity. They were trying to find a place to converge. Now, years later, um, actually since probably 2006, I don't think that I've been, I haven't been spending Christmas Eve with my mother's family anymore because I'm a little busy on Christmas Eve. And so I don't get to go down there anymore. Um, and I have noticed that that has created a lot of distance between me and that part of the family because I don't see them. Uh, I am here. I am you know, doing the work of the church. I don't get to travel down. They always schedule things on Sundays. I don't really understand that. I'm a little busy on Sundays, and so we don't really do that. But you, know, you, realize, you realize that over the past that we were using Christmas as a time for us to reconnect. So Methodists were trying to find where can we reconnect? Where can we find common ground? Where can we come together and kind of agree on at least something? Because we still have this elephant in the room about racism. So we're just going to leave that one right here for now. Let's see if we can find some other place that's a little less toxic, a little less rambunctious to discuss, a little more peaceful. And so they were trying to find places to come together which is admirable. I will give them credit for that. At least they were trying to find a place. They didn't really want to address the elephant, but, you know, everybody is not perfect. And so they were trying. But they were also starting to look at the fact that racism was not just a problem in the church, it was a problem in the culture. And as we were shifting out of the World War era and into the time period afterwards, civil rights are gonna become a major issue in the United States. And so the people are realizing that some of the same conversations we're having in here about the elephant back here is exactly what's happening out there in our country. And what are we going to do about that? How do we talk about that? And what do we have to say? So they started to wrestle with that. The third thing they're also starting to really wrestle with is about women. Up until this point, women have not been able to be ordained. But there are some women who feel called to be ordained. And so the church, it wasn't until 1956 that they started ordaining women. And it took faster in the northern part of the church than it did in the southern part of the church. And I get that. It's still a hot-button topic even today. You know, every now and then somebody's like, well, I don't think women should be clergy. And I hear that. I get it. Okay, fine. 
You know, but if you catch me on a snarky day, which is pretty much any day I'm awake, I'm liable to say something like this. Well, if you could do it, then God wouldn't have called me. Right? If you wanted to do it, have at it. But really, it comes down to vessel, right? That's a conversation about vessel. Is it important what I see or what I hear, or is it more important about what God is doing in this person and through this person? That's the question. That was the question that was spawning all the trouble with racism. That's the question that was spawning all the trouble about gender. What is it that we're looking at, and what is it that we're called to see? And those are not always the same thing. And unfortunately, as I was talking to our two young men earlier in, ch in children's time, a lot of what happens is that people had vilified each other. They had come to the conclusion that that was my enemy, that I am on this side of the conversation, and anybody that is not here is over there, and those people are my enemy. But that is not the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus spends a lot of time talking about who your neighbor is. And what your response is supposed to be to your neighbor. But Jesus doesn't spend as much time talking about who your enemy is. Who is your enemy? Well, if you look at the life of Jesus, if you look at the way he behaved, the relationships that he had, the encounters that he sought out or embraced, and the things that he said in the midst of those, you'll come to find that it's really hard to define enemy by Jesus. It's very hard. Technically, most of us would look and go, well, the Pharisees, who are clearly constantly coming to test him, to entrap him in, in verbal sparring, that those who would be all over the, the council and the Sadducees to have him crucified, that those people must be his enemies. And yet he constantly had dinner with them, conversation, engaged with them. He went where they were. And if they were to invite him, he responded and went not usually how we think about entertaining our enemies. He also spent a lot of time focusing on those that society said were enemies. Sinners, tax collectors, people that were enemies to the faith, people who were not embracing the way that we all should be going, and they were doing things over here. But what you find is that Jesus was willing to go to anyone who was broken, anyone who was suffering, anyone who needed to be loved and healed, anyone who would benefit from God's grace, Jesus was willing to go there and to talk and to touch and to be present and to give them what all of us need more than anything else, a divine encounter that lets us know that we are bigger than our mistakes. And Jesus gave them this. And so you start to realize that the earthly ministry of Jesus is marked not by clearly drawing lines on who is my enemy, but blurring those lines entirely. Because I don't think that Jesus thinks we have enemies. Jesus instead points to the actual enemy of the church. And that enemy is suffering. Human suffering. That's why Jesus tells us you should feed the hungry, give the thirsty something to drink, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the sick and the imprisoned, because they are suffering. And that is anathema to who we are called to be as the church. That is our battle, to alleviate suffering. 
to treat it and to triage it with mission work if necessary, but ultimately to do the hard work. And this is where the Methodist Church was struggling. It's a lot easier to see how we can fix out there if it will distract us from looking at how to fix in here. But to be a Christian means that every time we see suffering, whether we're watching it on the news or reading about it online or hearing about it in conversations, social media, it doesn't matter. Anytime we are bombarded with human suffering, as we have witnessed in the Ukraine, as we have seen countless times from famine and pandemic in Africa, what we have witnessed at the border in Mexico, anytime there is human suffering, we are called to respond, not just with prayer, not just with gifts, but with an introspection. How have we contributed either with our quiet ascent or our lack of condemnation to the practices that continue a cycle of suffering? How have we contributed to those things? And how might we stop that? Because change starts in here. And then we have the foresight and the empowerment to start making changes out there. But it requires us always to get introspective. Always we are required to go, how have I contributed to this? How have I helped? How have I hurt? Where have I fallen short of the glory of God who came to end human suffering? The cross itself is a reminder that God suffered that we would not. So how are we doing the internal work to ensure that human society is no longer crucifying others in the name of its own desire to perpetuate an acceptable level of suffering? It's a difficult inner journey. But the church needed to do it. The church needed to do it as well. Is the church going to address the fact that it didn't see that it was about the vessel's willingness to serve? And all women were asking for in the ordination request was, test us the same way that you test our male colleagues. You run them through the gauntlet of ordination. You test their call for the church. You test their fruitfulness. You test their gifts. That's all we're asking for. Test us. And if we are found lacking, then fine. But you have to let us come to the table for the testing. And that was part of the struggle. But they were doing the same thing when it came to the color of people's skin. Not the vessel, but the willingness to serve. The vessel's willingness, not what you see on the outside of the vessel. And that was the struggle the church was having because it was all very visual. You don't look like a pastor should look. You don't look like the optimal Methodist should look. But the truth is that it wasn't about how you look. It was about how you serve. And the church is going to continue to make inroads toward that reality. Because what they were discovering was that their brokenness was actually their biggest barrier to effective ministry. It truncated their effectiveness. It destroyed their gifts. It alienated the body of Christ from itself. And if they were going to continue to fulfill the divine call to make disciples for Jesus Christ, for the transformation of the world, then they were going to have to address the elephant in the room. And that's not an easy thing to do. Because over the course of time, the two sides had vilified each other. 
They had looked at each other and went, you are so wrong. There is no way that God can be at work in you because you are wrong. And the north said it to the south, and the south said it to the north. And in that, they started to find that they were creating hatred for one another, that the brokenness was actually festering and creating a stronger impetus to hate the other who is not with you. Because if you're not with me, then you must be against me. Which is not what Christ said. And so the people were struggling with these things. But they knew that there was something within them. Perhaps it was that peace of God's self that they had received at their baptism. Maybe it was the peace of God's self that we take within us at the Holy Sacrament of Communion. Maybe it was the movement of the Spirit nudging, calling, pointing out that the brokenness cannot last. That they started to feel this disquiet within. We are broken now, but we cannot stay that way. And how can we help heal a broken world if we will not even address the brokenness within ourselves? And so they slowly, by slow step, the United Methodist Church will not be formed until 1968, over two decades after the start of the quest for unity. And most of us could sit here and go, really, 20-some years? You don't think you could have sped that up a little bit? But remember, in a church that is eternal, time flows differently. You'd be amazed how long it takes for some people to get on board with a concept or an idea. But it happened. They started to move together. And it wasn't about converting everybody from the north to the south or everybody from the south to the north. It wasn't about we're all going to instantaneously agree that it's not about skin color, and it's not about gender. That didn't happen. Those conversations continue even today. But what happened was they realized that the biggest barrier, the biggest obstacle had been placed by themselves. The journey to the kingdom to come was being obstructed by their own hatred of the other. And so their brokenness was actually the chasm that they could not overcome. And it didn't matter how effective things were, were and fruitful in the north or how effective and fruitful things were for the southern part of the church if they weren't together. It stopped the multiplication of their fruitfulness. And it's a hard and humbling thing to realize that you are the greatest barrier to your own effectiveness. That you are the one that is stopping the preaching of the word. You are the one that is stopping people experiencing God's love and grace. That you are the one that is creating landmines for people that would dare to start to walk the path of discipleship. And I can't imagine how many Methodist hearts broke when they realized that they were part of the problem. But these conversations about brokenness, they continue. At this past annual conference in June, we had two of my colleagues leave to go to the global Methodist church that was started on May 1st. Already they have walked away. And then in October, there will be a called annual conference to deal with however many churches decide that they too want to walk away. 
and disaffiliate from the Methodist Church, the United Methodist Church. And we're going to do this over Zoom because there's no better way to handle a divorce than by video call. But what does the Bible say? The Bible from one who is imprisoned says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Not called because of your gender, not called because of your race, not called because of your socioeconomic privilege, but called because of Christ. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love for the purpose of making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintaining unity is hard work. It is easier to walk away. It is a lot harder to lean into someone who has put themselves in a position that feels adversarial. It is harder to walk toward the one who already has their hands out to say, no, come no further. It is incredibly difficult to say, I am going to stand here even though you and I do not stand lockstep on this issue. I will not abandon you. It's harder than it is to walk away. And Jesus is calling us to maintain the unity for as long as possible. Because if you simply walk away, you will no longer hear the critique. You will no longer see the people. And it's hard to imagine that Christians can be so diverse in how they understand God's grace and love and call to ministry, that they can be so diverse that you will actually find denominations on polar opposite ends of a conversation. And yet the one thing that draws them back together is always Jesus Christ. Always Jesus Christ. We cannot gather together at the font because even in baptism, some of us do that before others are ready to do it. We cannot gather at the table for we do not have the same understanding of what is happening at the table. And if you can't agree on the menu, you'd be amazed how many people don't want to sit. But it is Christ who gave us both that brings us back together. And so unity is a willingness to stay with another. Maybe that's what Jesus was talking about when Jesus said, if you are compelled to go one mile, go to. If you feel that you have done everything in your power for the sake of unity, walk another mile. Who knows if that will be the mile where the movement of the Spirit changes both of your hearts. Let us never forget that not only is the ministry of Jesus Christ recorded in the gospel accounts, marked by Christ changing others, but Christ being changed by others. This is epitomized in the resurrection of Lazarus, where Jesus knew that Lazarus had died, knew that he was going there to raise Lazarus from the dead, told his disciples that that was what was going to happen. And then Jesus gets there and encounters Martha and Mary in the community that had gathered to mourn the loss of Lazarus. And their overwhelming emotional outpouring of mourning and suffering changes Christ that he weeps. 
he too is changed by the encounter. Outwardly, visibly, powerfully. Ministry changes those who think they are right and those that think they are wrong. Ministry changes all of us together. And we cannot be a people who are willing to choose brokenness over unity, not when we are called to anything less but one body, one church, one spirit, one baptism. We are called to unity. And that seems ridiculous. I know outsiders look in and go, there are thousands and thousands, maybe at this point hundreds of thousands of Christian denominations. Unity is a joke, they say. But no. Unity is a willingness at any moment and at any time to come together over Jesus Christ. And to recognize that, yes, we are not carbon copies of each other, but the one thing that continually connects us, the one thing, the firm foundation upon which we all stand is Jesus Christ. And if we are willing to be united in that, then anything is possible out there and here and in here. And that is the hope that we have. Because after over 20 years of yearning and thinking about and pondering and trying to work toward unity, it does happen. Now, maybe it was only meant to happen for a time. That's a narrative that's being put out right now, that the union and the unity of the United Methodist Church, that is the United Methodist Church, was only for a time. Who has decided that the time is over? Is it God or is it us? But when you find yourself really thinking about ending a relationship, when you find yourself thinking, you know, it would just be better if I walk away, when you find yourself, whether it is as a disciple of Jesus Christ, in your school, in your job, in your community, in your neighborhoods, in your household, in your church, in your denomination, when you find that moment where you think to yourself, unity is not worth it. May you hear the words of the letter to the Ephesus. Maintain unity. Maintain. Sometimes it is in the maintenance of unity that we really find who God has called us to be. It is in that hard, holy work that we learn not only who the other is, a beloved child of God, redeemed and called and to whom we will share the kingdom. And we also discover that about ourselves. We discover that, yes, we too are called. Yes, we too are beloved of sacred worth. And God has done everything that we might have that epiphany and share it with others. And unity gives us the greatest chance of success in that. The division itself speaks louder than any proclamation the divided will speak. The division speaks volumes, much louder than any single human voice. Because brokenness is what we are really battling. We are battling human suffering, and brokenness will always lead to suffering. So you have no enemy 
in the global Methodist church. You have no enemy here in the world. Even if somebody declares themselves to be your enemy, your enemy is human suffering. And that may be why someone feels so broken, why someone feels so angry, so hurt, that they lash out, that they target you. Maybe it is their suffering that is propelling them into this position of adversary. But you have not been called to that. You have been called to a very high and holy position in the world. You have been called with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another with love, that you might make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.